the National Archives podcast series. Did She Kill Him? Addiction, Adultery and Arsenic in Victorian Britain. Presented by Kate Colquhoun. So this sheet of paper, which is a floor pan plan of Battlecrease House, as you can see, which is in the suburb of Egbert in Liverpool, is one of thousands of documents relating to the Maybrick case, which is 1889, which are stored here in the National Archives. And these packed boxes, there are several of them, are full, mostly of Home Office material, uh, which is very official looking. Um, But I'd argue that while it's very easy to overlook, because it doesn't really look as official as most of the other stuff, it is in fact one of the most important documents in the boxes. In fact, I'd argue that it shimmers with significance. Um, And when I found it, it was much the most exciting thing that I found, even though there's plenty of words in the boxes, masses of words, and you trawl your way through them and inevitably find some interesting stuff, inevitably find some stuff that other people haven't written about or talked about or perhaps even thought about before. Um, The reason I find this floor plan so important is because it was produced as a court exhibit for one of the greatest Victorian showpiece trials, and because, particularly, um, because it stridently emphasises the domestic nature of this case. When this was displayed on a big board to the public in St George's Hall during that sensational courtroom battle, it signalled, as nothing else signalled, the, the, the fact that the privacy of the Maybrick family was going to be opened up to the most probing public scrutiny. It's only of the first floor, but by indicating the position of the beds, the exact position of the side tables and the chairs and the chests whose drawers had already been rifled through by family and friends and the police, this diagram indicated that every one of the intimacies and the sordid secrets of the Maybrick's middle-class lives would be revealed. More than that, it suggested that the process would prove that contrary to popular ideology, even ostensibly respectable families incubated feuds, addictions and immorality, and that everything bourgeois Victorian society took for granted, therefore, was built on shifting sands. So, who were the people who lived in this house and caused all of this fuss? And what had they actually done to cause it? I'm going to assume that you don't all know the the story, but I'm also going to race through it for those of you who do. Here are James Maybrick, grey-haired, well-established, Liverpool cotton broker, and his wife Florence, daughter of a wealthy banking family from Mobile, Alabama. Alabama. She was just 18 when she married James in 1882, and she's very fond of frills. She wasn't particularly bright. Her flirtatious charm would initially have made her the centre of Liverpool society. And he, as you can probably see, was more than twice her age. So now, anyone who's read their Edith Wharton or their Henry James knows that marriages between vibrant American girls with pots of New World cash and dourer, fortune-hunting Englishmen were particularly fashionable during the 1880s. And it's certainly not clear whether James thought Florence was richer than she turned out to be, nor whether she really had fallen in love with him on a steamboat between America and Liverpool or whether she was an unwitting pawn in a game of mutual deception, playing itself out between James and Florence's irrepressible mother, the often-married Baroness von Rock. But at any rate, 
1889, these two were eight years into their marriage. They had two small children, and they'd just moved into a very grand suburban house in Egbeth. But despite the outward appearances of a pretty and cohesive marriage, a flourishing business, prosperity, conventionality, real strains between this couple were by 1889 beginning to show. And it, it wasn't just about the difference in their ages, or their nationalities, or their upbringings. The reality was that despite his insistence on keeping up appearances, James was in debt. And in addition, Florence felt isolated. She felt resented by her husband's female friends and criticised for her ignorance of the tens of rules that punctuated English Victorian life. But adding to the strain of it all, James was widely considered to be a hypochondriac. He moaned about every ache and pain, every tremor, every new indication that his sight was weakening. His rooms at home and at work were littered with bottles and packets, medicines and tonics. He talked about his health constantly, imagine. <laughs> You'd just want to kick him, wouldn't you? And he was irritable, bristling at the slightest provocation. Worse, he sometimes boasted of taking dangerous poisons, especially arsenic and sometimes strychnine, believing that they made him strong. Florence had noticed these strange white powders that he, her husband took, and she also noticed that they never seemed to do him any good. In fact, she thought that after he took them, he was worse, and she voiced her concerns to a number of doctors, even to James's brothers, but none of them took any notice. Flighty, young, foreign, perhaps she was easy to ignore. And so the couple argued, increasingly violent rows that startled their staff and left Florence with torn buttons, at least once a black eye. And then, towards the end of 1888, she discovered that he'd been keeping a mistress for years and that he paid her £100 a year, despite their mounting debts. So you see, the Maybrick marriage was breaking. And by the spring of 1889, Florence had had enough. Possibly before, but certainly by the spring of 1889, she'd had enough. And in March, she went to London, telling her husband and her staff that she had to nurse a sick godmother. In fact, she intended to go to a solicitor to talk to him about divorce, and she had something far more audacious in mind. Shockingly, over, I mean, yeah, shockingly, certainly shockingly for then, over several days in a private hotel, she intended to cast all caution to the wind and to entertain a dashingly good-looking, handsome, young Liverpool cotton broker called Alfred Brearley, in whom all her dreams of escape were lodged. This is the only, so far as I know, but there may be others in the room who found others, the only image we have of Brearley from the, the papers at the time. Now, just weeks after Florence returned home, James fell particularly ill. And initially, his two doctors thought that he had food poisoning or gastroenteritis. He was sick and he had diarrhoea. His legs ached and he complained of a painfully raw throat. And for about a fortnight, his health vacillated, during which time his physicians prescribed over 20 different irritant poisons, including morphia, belladonna, nux vomica, hydrocyanic acid, phosphoric acid, and strychnine, all to try to make him better. He just didn't want to be sick in the Victor Victorian pharmacopoeia was around. Meanwhile, sick of the lot of them, uh, his wife Florence went quietly in and out of the sick room, encouraging him to sip on warm milk, 
spooning him chicken broth, or, as a last resort, making up small glasses of Valentine's meat juice, which was a highly concentrated stock whose nutritional qualities were much vaunted in the Victorian sick room. She hoped that, unlike the doctors, she could build up his declining hope, strength. Here it is. As you see, it promises to conserve the vital forces of the body when weakened by digestive disorders. These bottles are only so big um, and highly concentrated. They were sort of marmite, I suppose, in terms my mother would have said they were the marmite of the day because that's all she gave me when I was sick as a child. Florence had been pretty discreet, actually, about her affair with Brearley, apart from the fact that she chose a hotel in London which was well known among the cotton brokers of Liverpool. But exhausted now by James's illness, she made a terrible mistake. With James gravely ill, she gave the children's uppity nursemaid, Alice Yap, a letter to post. Yap, noticing it was addressed to a man, Alfred Brearley, passed it to the little girl, Gladys, to hold as they went for an afternoon walk. And surprise, surprise, Gladys dropped it in a puddle. So, of course, Yap had to open it, and she had to read it. Its opening words, dearest, made it clear to the nanny that something was gravely wrong. Indeed, she jumped immediately to the right conclusion that Mrs Maybrick was an adulteress. Here's a copy of the letter on the left-hand side, and um, all of the letters were transcribed as depositions for the ensuing trial. Now, Nanny Yap's imagination whirled. If her mistress could so transgress, might she not also be scheming to poison her husband? This, she thought, would make sense of the oddities that she'd noticed, including a bowl recently left on the dressing table in the main bedroom in which arsenic-rich flypapers had been left to soak in water. Suspicions bloomed. Yap spoke to James's friend, Mrs Briggs. Mrs Briggs cabled James's older brother in London. Come quick, she wrote. Strange things are going on here. Leaping on the next express train to Liverpool, Michael quickly wrested the management of Florence's household from her. She was forbidden from having anything more to do with her husband's care, and Michael didn't pull his punches. He told her to her face that he suspected her of trying to harm James. But by now, James was terribly ill, and two days later, he died. Everyone turned against Florence. Within hours of the death, and as she lay in a supposed swoon in her bedroom, two of James's oldest friends, Matilda Briggs, aforementioned, and her sister Constance Hughes, along with the truculent nanny, Alice Yap, began to ransack the drawers and cupboards of Battlecruise House. And they turned up enough arsenic to fell an army. Packets of cat poison, fly papers, tonics and pills. Enough to have killed them all many times over. And then one of the professional nurses who'd been hired to look after James in the last week of his illness, in fact the last four days, reported that she had watched Florence tamper with a bottle of Valentine's meat juice. She'd seen her secrete it out of the room in the folds of her skirt and then come back in again a while later. And the nurse suspected foul play. When the contents of that bottle of meat juice were analysed, a quantity of arsenic was discovered, and inevitably the police became involved. A post-mortem was ordered on James's body, and despite the fact that the presence of arsenic in his dead body was inconclusive, the definite presence of arsenic was inconclusive, Florence was arrested and charged with his murder. She was sent confined, she never left it actually after he died, to her bedroom, and then to Walton Jail in Liverpool, she was prevented from attending James's funeral 
and she was denied the chance to say goodbye to her two young children who were hastily removed from the house. And now the police rifled through her linen, carrying off dozens more bottles, jars and bottles for testing. They collected samples of soil from around the drains and, and water from the housemaid's closet on the landing in the first floor, in the kitchen pantry, in James's office, in the bedroom, in the dressing rooms. Any substance that might contain arsenic was grabbed, labelled and packed off to the city chemist for analysis. And I don't know if you remember, but my granny, who was just about a Victorian and died aged 96, had endless bottles in the house. She never threw anything away. They had brown, sticky residues in the bottle, and they were bottom, and they were funny little packets of pills. You never knew what anything was. So I imagine that Battle Creek's house was something like that, to the max, because James was a, a hypochondriac. This is the list of the samples sent to the city analyst. So as you can imagine, there were crates and crates and crates of bottles and potions and pills and empty bottles and full bottles from the pantry, from the larder, from all, all over the house. Um, so many referred to in court that it was very easy to get confused, in fact, about which ones were found where, which ones contained poison, and which, most of them, turned out to have nothing sinister about them at all. The police obviously interrogated the Maybrook staff, the wider family, and all of their friends, and they took depositions several times from each of them. Here's part of one of those, uh, copied out and sent to the Home Office after the trial. All here in the National Archives, uh, several versions of each deposition as they went back and took new um, statements from each witness before the trial. And obviously, for any writer or for any historian, it's these documents in particular that allow uh, the possibility, if you like, of unpicking the different points of view from all the different witnesses and thus forming that kind of 360, insofar as that's possible, rounder, more complex picture of the events of the story as they unfolded 125 or so odd years ago. And what they show us and what that is that the legal machine was swinging into action. So that... Astonishingly, claims that the 50-year-old James had been a habitual arsenic eater were brushed aside. The fact that in the days before his death, all of those eminent doctors had prescribed poisons including strychnine, morphine, arsenic, was surprisingly ignored. And despite, um, despite slivers of evidence to the contrary, only Florence fell under suspicion. Why? Because whether or not she was guilty of attempting to poison her husband... The police had proof in the form of that letter to Alfred Brearley that Mrs. Maybrick was not the most virtuous of wives. In their minds, in the minds of the majority, her actions marked her out as little more than a whore. And if she could commit that dreadful crime, that sin, she may as well be a murderess. This is Florence in the dock. Three months later, on the 7th of August, 1889, this rather pretty little woman looked unflinchingly towards the judge as 12 black-coated men filed back into the jury box. It had taken them just 43 minutes to find her guilty of murder, a verdict that many would call the greatest miscarriage of justice in English criminal history. So, there you have it, a potted history of the infamous Maybrick case. Someone once asked me, how do you know when, whether a story will be strong enough to carry a whole book. And I was tempted, rashly, to say instinct. Um, but in fact, I realised it's not instinct. 
I believe really strongly that all great stories end up being much, much more than the sum of their initially obvious parts. So as a historian, what I want to do is punch a hole in time. I want to get at the past. I want imaginatively and sympathetically to hold hands with our ancestors, to understand just a little bit more clearly how closely their world really worked. And if that can be achieved, it's almost inevitable that the story will simultaneously cast new light on our own present world, on our lives, our society, our impulses, and our responses to them. And so the Maybrick story pricked my interest on many, many levels. Florence's story wasn't unique. As I mentioned, as the novels of Henry James and Edith Wharton so compellingly chart, there was a flurry of marriages around this time between young girls from the New World and older Englishmen drawn by their joie de vivre and their cash. Isolated in the cold seaport city of Liverpool, a cuckoo in its social nest, Florence's isolation, her loneliness, her difference, paralleled the lot of so many of the women in similar situations. In fact, Bruce Ismay, who ran the White Star Line, as you know, that built the Titanic, was also married to a young American called Florence, who lived extremely close to the Maybricks. And Florence Ismay was also incredibly lonely and incredibly unhappy, despite her wealth. Further, though, the Maybrick case, by seeming to prove that even ideal marriages could contain that kind of suffocating loneliness and falsity, and that women had sexual appetites as ma to match those of men, shone a spotlight on marriage as an institution at a time when society was feeling particularly anxious about it. And I just want to explore that a little bit, because the previous summer, in 1888, a novelist called Mona Caird, we've forgotten about her now, but she published an essay in uh, the Westminster Review, a small radical press, which was critical of the women who sought what she called the bondage of marriage. And she argued that matrimony was completely outmoded, that it imprisoned and subjugated women, and it made her the most famous feminist in England. Not because everybody began to read the Westminster Review, but because the Daily Telegraph published it, the most successful of the middle-class newspapers, and it was really alarmed. Struck by this idea that the institution of marriage was a failure, outmoded, about to completely disappear, the Daily Telegraph asked its readers to comment. And during that summer of 1888, it was overwhelmed by 27,000 responses. The Daily Telegraph today doesn't get that many responses. Proof that Middle England had been caught up in that widening debate, that it touched them. And it's there. It's not just there in Wharton and James. It's there in Trollope. It's there in Hardy. Could love survive marriage? But this was bigger. Because what Mona Caird was talking about was explicitly feminist. The marriage question, as it was called, and as the Daily Telegraph explored, brought unsettling new and radical ideas to the breakfast tables of the middle classes, to the bourgeoisie. And it aggravated existing debates about the complexities of the female lot. So women are expected to be pure. Female adultery constitutes a social danger, not least because it threatens all of those certainties about inheritance. And now some people are beginning to wonder out loud, what will happen if women demand faithfulness from their husbands? And others are fearing for their own positions, because if virile women begin to aspire to a life without marriage, where does that leave them? So you know, we're talking about the late 80s. Social gains have been made. Uh, women's expectations have changed. 
but they are still emotionally, sorry, economically vulnerable and educatedly limi educationally limited. And it wasn't, those early feminists didn't lobby for suffrage, and that was really the second bit. What they lobbied for was the right to work, the right to actually earn money and be free of kind of patriarchal con control, and to have, and to be allowed to go to university and to be properly educated. And so the Maybrick marriage, with its mismatched, unlovely marriage at the centre, the Maybrick case, sorry, with this unlovely marriage at its centre, stirs up the waters of a particularly spiky issue. So there's transatlantic marriage, and there's ideas about marriage more generally. And then this story also highlighted, rather uncomfortably, the hypocrisies that lurked at the heart of late Victorian society. Because the double standards of the day, you've probably heard this a million times, meant that a man's infidelity, if it became public, would be frowned upon. But if a middle-class woman was unfaithful, she would be crushed for hers. Men had only to demonstrate infidelity to get a divorce. Wives had to demonstrate desertion, sodomy, or worse. I won't go into it. And divorcees, because they refused uh, to submit to society's expectations of what a woman should be, i.e. self-effacing, were swept kind of to the very margins of society. The point about all of this is that women who didn't conform to those middle-class women who didn't conform to those strict morals um, or models of morality or chastity and philanthropy risked being judged not just as bad, but depraved or even mad. And of course, that played a crucial part in the Maybrook case. Because with so many female witnesses, friends, servants, so on, stacked against her, with her infidelity proven and demonstrated, it wasn't just Florence Maybrick in the dock of St George's Hall during August 1889. It was the moral character of women in England as a whole. Or to put it another way, Florence would be judged not simply for murder, but against very complex ideas of femininity. So this story, inevitably, provided a general focus for feminist views, beyond whether marriage was outmoded or not. In fact, the strength of the initial reaction against her, some argued, was an indication of pernicious gender inequality that was running throughout society. What does that mean? Well, you know, women are enjoying more freedoms than they have done for generations. That wasn't an I at issue. But the effects of those first stirrings of feminism on England as a nation were. So those who lobbied for equal rights were intent on debunking the myth of the angel in the house. They were hankering after a new set of values. They argued against those kind of listlessly unrewarding hours in the drawing room of domesticity and the cramping conventions that prevented women from seeking independence. And these women, and some men, of course, Mill included, asked, why should women be condemned for attending criminal trials? Why should juries be all male? Indeed, how can an all male justice system be quite fair? And on the other side, those who argued against a fairer deal for women argued that the increased liberties that women sought or that were sought for them would turn them into loathsome, self-assertive creatures who would refuse to get married or to bear children. And consequently, civilization would crumble along with the decline of the family. Liberated women, these said, these men, mostly men, said, threatened to subvert or even erase the established power of men. And their liberation, many wrote, would only lead to an increase in female criminality. And the great irony, of course, is that despite all of these radical agendas, 
women were likely to be the harshest judges of their own sex. So most of the middle-class women in England immediately condemned Florence for her immorality. It wasn't just men. At the inquest at James's death, into James's death, at the magisterial hearing and at the trial, well-dressed women crammed the public benches. And once Florence's liaison with Brearley had been made public, censure, wrote the newspapers, shone in their faces, and they hissed openly like vipers at her whenever she left the dock. Because her deviancy confirmed their own successful negotiation of that narrowest path of Victorian virtue, and because it was a potent threat to middle-class complacency. Her libido, once it became public, had to be labelled, I can't even say it, I'm going to have to find another word, degenerate. Um, in the minds of most, it was proof that she was guilty of murder. And because of these prevailing views, widely felt, widely expressed, Sir Charles Russell, who was her defence barrister, argued forcibly that Florence was being condemned for immorality rather than murder by a society that held men and women to astonishingly different standards of behaviour. So those are the main themes that run sort of course through the background of the Maybrick story. Um, but I should mention too that Nanny Yap particularly interested the public. And she ensured in her own way that the story garnered the kind of feverish attention that it got. This supposedly is her. There are many more sketches of her looking a lot less attractive. Um, Alice was interesting. And she was particularly interesting because she trailed all the resonances of the unsafe servant from popular fiction. So has anyone here read Wilkie Collins's Moonstone? Right, well, so hunchback, hysterical, wonderful Rosanna comes immediately to mind. Um, Yaps, and of course Wilkie Collins's Moonstone was the great sensation and the great bestseller of its mid-1860s mid day. So it's not, it wasn't just some sort of side novel. It was a book that, that everyone had read, really. Um, Nanny Yap's actions were curious to the staff employing middle classes, and it was a combination of her youth, she was the same age as Florence, her apparent intelligence, and her confidence in speaking out against her mistress that made them really nervous. Because by opening her mistress's letter, and by turning it over to James's family, it was this woman, Yap, who'd set a flame to the tinder of concern that surrounded James's illness, until a fire of suspicion raged. So whether or not she'd acted in the best interests of her master, her actions were in direct defiance of her mistress. And all of those sort of gossamer threads of loyalty and deference so necessary for the success of the contract that bound employer to servant had been broken. Yap, her very name emphasised it, behaved sharply and her motives were unclear. So her apparent treachery made the broadsheet reading public, the Times, the Telegraph, the Daily News, shudder. Mm. Now, everyone knew that the family saved, uh, the, the servant saved the family from all of that toil, the cleaning, the washing, the tidying, the ordering. And as industrial wealth made the middle classes expand, achieving the right level of gentility, as anyone who's read there, Mrs. Beaton knows, increasingly meant hiring staff. Their hands thickened and roughened, while their employers remained kind of soft and white. They were expected to be respectful, obedient, and crucially invisible and inaudible. 
And although about a third of all employed women in England at that time were domestics, industrialization was changing the relationship between them and their employers because it was creating other work opportunities in factories and in shops. So increasingly, bourgeois demand on the one hand and this sort of shrinking pool from which to take your servants to, to find them meant that all of that meek deference that Dickens would have expected in the middle of the century, for example, was beginning to be mixed with resistance. And the much-discussed servant problem had become the bane of the middle-class wives' life. So the picture that emerged from Battlecrease House was one in which Mrs. Maybrick's power had been subverted, not just by her brother-in-law, Michael, but by the children's nurse, a fact that went to the heart of that middle-class anxiety about the fragility of the social hierarchy on which they all so deeply relied. Yap was employed to look after the children, but she was, it seemed, to everybody, in fact, watchful and uppity. There was something about her that suggested a subordinate interfering in the affairs that were none of her business. And this mattered because, like the female poisoner, the disloyal servant was, as I mentioned before, a really recognisable type to readers of contemporary fiction. And beyond Alice Yap, I want also to touch on another theme that courses through the story, adding to its power. And that, obviously, haven't talked about it yet, is arsenic. And strangely, what people said was James's addiction to it. And the thing is that arsenic was particularly frightening to the Victorians because it was a very cheap and very copious byproduct of the smelting industry. And it seemed to be everywhere, most commonly in a white powder form called arsenic trioxide, also known as arsenious acid. And it was potently toxic to anything that had a central nervous system. It's it was a, a, nevertheless, it was impossible to evade. There it was in your clothes, in your candles, in your pants, in your perambulators, in your concert tickets, in your toys, in your beer, in your boot linings. In your, and, and it was legitimately available as well as being hidden in all of these things um, in order to kill rats and mice and flies and all of those sorts of things. Copper arsenite, this is the, the great example, isn't it, of the period. Copper arsenite was the main ingredient in the most popular dye of the period, which is Sheila's green, which was then used to colour papers, fabrics, wallpapers, used in dresses. I mean, some people said that the very air in a Victorian ballroom swirled with arsenious dust if the ladies had chosen to wear green. But also Britannia metal, which was used for teapots and cutlery, often contained arsenic. Brass was bronzed with a thin layer of it, and the uh, very um, popular colours of paint, pigment for walls, king's yellow and mineral blue, they were known, as well as uh, French grey, were all, um, all used different forms of arsenic or were frequently adulterated with it. So pervasive was arsenic that in 1860, the medical journal The Lancet invited its readers to imagine a man living in a cloud of arsenical dust, sitting in his library on a summer's day, his walls coated with arsenic, a suspicious green dust on his books and arsenical particles kind of floating in the air, filling his air passages, inflaming his eyes, disturbing his digestion and preparing him for dismal and racking pains. And this is what it said. Arsenic haunts us in our walls, in our paper and our paints. It fills the air and at times it gets into our food or adds a fatal charm to our bath buns. 
No wonder, it thought, and plenty joined in. In fact, uh, plenty of people think that Charles Darwin's illness was caused by arsenical dust. And no wonder so many invalids actually came back from a trip to the seaside feeling so much better. But when it came to arsenic, what complicated things was that some also believed in its medicinal benefits, so that its addition to nerve tonics was believed to have a positive effect. It strengthened the constitution, people said. It warded off infection, and it generally fortified the body or acted as a prophylactic against disease. James Maybrick took it, believing that it would improve his sexual vigour. And certainly there were plenty that boasted of that ben benefit, making it the sort of Viagra of the Victorian period. But as we can see from advertisements like these for toilet soaps and complexion tonics, Ladies were also told that arsenical products could remove unsightly hair or blemishes, that as a face wash it would deliver a lovely translucency to their complexions. And indeed, as part of her defence, Florence always claimed that she made arsenical face washes for herself by soaking flypapers in water and then mixing the resulting liquid with rose water. This is Fowler's solution. This is the most popular cure-all over-the-counter medicine of its day. It's the sort of cowpole, but for adults. And it too contained arsenic in solution, along with a little bit of lavender. And the trick was to regulate the doses in order to control the side effects. So 12 drops, it was normal dosage, 12 drops taken three times a day in a glass of water was considered effective for an adult. And it contained about well, two-tenths of a grain of arsenic. But if you got the dose wrong, it might result in burning eyes, tender guns, skin rashes, painful inflammation of your nerves in your arms and legs, indigestion, impotence, vomiting, a coated tongue, general anxiety and depression. And most doctors believed that tingling in the extremities or the onset of nausea when you'd taken some Fowler's solution was an indication that the drug was working. And in reality, any of those symptoms were more, much more likely to indicate the beginning of a very dangerously toxic reaction. James took Fowler's. Arsenic was everywhere then in most Victorian households. And added to that, a number of very high-profile cases during the second half of the 19th century had already equated arsenic with the idea of, the, of sexually charged female evil. There were particular murder cases, Madeleine Smith in Scotland, Florence Bravo, Adelaide Bartlett. All of those um, pulled together um, arsenic with the notion of sex either before or during marriage but not with your husband and all of those women were accused of murder the fact that arsenic was, was the poison of choice if you like or the, or the poison that was found in the meat juice in this case, the Maybrook case just further increased the likelihood that society's reaction was going to be very extreme and just to come back to those themes it strikes me as I sort of said that so many of those social themes are as cogent and pressing today as they were a century and a quarter ago. The failure of marriage, gender equality, moral hypocrisy, addiction. How, as a society, do we deal with these? Isn't it easier simply to recoil from the difficulties <coughs> surrounding them, call them tricky, and judge anyone caught up in their tricky webs, sticky webs, as harshly as our ancestors did? And we think we're so modern. I'm not quite done because there are two other aspects of the story I want to squeeze in before I stop and, and ask you for your questions. They make it really rich pickings for any historian. Um, first, clearly, is the amount of material that survived. 
The police records haven't. They were lost in Lancashire. Um, but most of those papers anyway were copied for the Home Office and they're therefore in the boxes here in queue. Depositions, copies of letters, handwritten notes detailing the meticulous resifting of evidence by the Home Office ministers after the trial and documents like this, which is uh, a reprieve document um, committing Mrs Maybrick to life imprisonment rather than execution. Um, it's the original document which... As typed, notice the world's moved on, uh, with flawed logic, the basis for the Home Office's decision to commute Florence's execution while keeping her in prison for a murder they were sure but couldn't prove, actually, and knew they couldn't prove, that she had committed. And there's all sorts of other marvellous material, including uh, memoranda uh, charting the debates in Westminster about what to do with her once she was in prison, what she was and what, was, and what she wasn't allowed to do, while she was incarcerated. Here's one of those. And there are some tantalising hints in various documents here as well that Florence might have been pregnant at the times of James's death. And this is a new angle to the story. If true, was it James's child or Brearley's? Does it make it more or less likely that Florence would seek, seek a divorce or try to kill her, her husband? Does it make sense of some of her other behaviours too? I'm going to leave that to you as potential readers, if you're interested, to pursue, because we really don't have time to pursue it here. And there are, of course, other bits and pieces of information relevant to this story in places other than the National Archives. Uh, there are some folders in the University Library in America, um, and I was astonished to discover in uh, the files of New Scotland Yard, there are some notes from one of the attending doctors after the trial, Carter. Here is part of one of them. I think you can see it's terribly difficult to read. This is probably one of the easier pages. Uh, but it is, in fact, a crucial survivor because it bears on the complexity of some of the scientific evidence, particularly the methods that the doctors used to try to restore James Maybrick's health before he died. It's a multi-page memo which needed to be unpicked incredibly carefully. And lastly, outside of archives, there's geography or location, and it's crucial for me, and I think for any of us, really, in positioning a story within its context. And in London, well, I think we're very used to this. The Victorian world is all around us. It's in our domestic houses. It's in our big civic structures. It's in the Houses of Parliament. It's in Newgate. It's on the embankment. It's in streetlights. It's, it's everywhere. And Liverpool is similar. It was the second city of empire. And in the same way that London's characterised by, and even organised by, in fact, its river, Liverpool takes its personality from the great Mersey estuary, the docks, the seagulls, the salt-in-the-air smell of the city. James Maybrick's house is still there, as we've seen, as are his offices, more or less, the great railway termini, the reading room where the coroner undertook his investigation, and St George's Hall, where Florence was tried. And I was really lucky, because I was allowed into this building, which is the County Sessions House, which is closed to the public. This is where the magisterial trial held, was held before Florence was sent to trial. It's closed to the public. It's a storage space, in fact, for the Walker Art Gallery. Um, and as a result, it's a pristine survivor of an 1880s courthouse. And so walking around it, standing in its docks, descending to the cells, with no one else around, was a really, really precious historical gift. It was like stepping back in time. Because this building was only built four years before, five years, before the Maybrick case took place. And so it's an architectural treasure. It lets us wriggle back inside the story 
And so it's as important, in fact, to all of us as the boxes of papers that are lodged the other side of this wall. Um, I want to just show it to you really quickly because it is amazing. Um, what you can see here are the sort of glossy green ceramic tiles that face the lower parts of the wall. It's bright, still bright, hardly walked on Roman mosaic floor tiles, elaborately carved wooden panels everywhere. And these astonishing door handles in the shape of a Lancastrian rose, which tempt you, don't they, to turn them like that. But you don't get through a door like that. You have to lever them up. They're all tricks. Everything, everything inside is rich and solid. It's designed to reflect power without stinting on comfort. Hot water runs into porcelain hand basins for the judges. Library shelves in the barristers' rooms are packed with richly bound legal volumes. Fireplaces and capacious furniture made the legal teams very comfortable indeed. Um, and it's a thoughtful building, too, because all of the internal arrangements are consciously complex. There are separate entrances for solicitors, for witnesses, for prisoners, for magistrates. And that means that there's a maze of corridors and staircases, all ending in wrought iron grills. And each one is designed to keep the various players apart from one another until they confront one another in court. It's like theatre. In 1889, this building was really clever and it was really grand, but its shiny surfaces made it really noisy. And even today, so much almost empty of people, it really sets your nerves on edge. And so Florence would have been accustomed to the inside view of a cell door. You never really think about it, do you? No handle on the inside with its peephole and its hatch. And by comparison, the dock was unbelievably exposing. Here is um, a view of the dock from the magistrate's bench looking down. You can see how proximate everything is, how close everybody is. A photograph here that shows how close the public gallery is. You could, you could throw something at her standing in, well, I'm sure people did, standing in the dock. Um, and here is the skylight right above the dock over which the claws of the seagulls scratched and scuttled and still do. And here, this is so precious. This is the back of the dock. Defendants sat on this wooden bench at the front, and they left through that hip height, waist height door. And when they got round to here, in order to go down into the cells, this great door is lifted up on hinges, like a coffin lifting up to make you go down into hell. And this is the stone, narrow stone staircase, dark through which the defendant would go down, back down into the cells. And there's, there's more in Liverpool, including, I'm going to whiz through this, Exchange Station and the road on which uh, James Maybrook had his offices, the Garston Reading Rooms, where most of the inquest took place, such a modest little old chapel, um, the modest villa where the Maybricks first lived before they moved to Battlecrease, the staircase and the stained glass windows on the landing of Battlecrease House, the Lark Lane police station or lockup where Florence was held during the final days of the inquest, and the much grander courtroom in St George's Hall where she was tried. Changing tack, here is the cast of characters, I've got to rush now, um, involved in the story, printed in the contemporary press. Husbands, wives, staffs, friends, doctors, experts, lawyers, what strikes me about the story is that among such a crowd of interested parties, Florence was completely alone. Her looks, her youth, 
rumours of those violent rows, and principally the proof of her infidelity, ensured that her story was a sensation. And perhaps it was that isolation and that interest that pushed her to make a very unusual public statement at the end of her trial. You've probably heard that defendants weren't allowed to speak in capital trials. They were protected from speaking in order to effectively protect themselves from cross-examination so that they wouldn't damn themselves. But a defendant could ask at the end of the trial, ask after all of the evidence had been heard, to make a statement on their own behalf. They couldn't then be cross-questioned um, as a result, and that evidence bore much, held much less weight than the evidence of the witnesses. Florence asked to make a statement, and as she stepped towards the front of that dock, the spectators all wondered whether this slight woman, dressed in full mourning, was an angel or a medusa. Was she a whore? Had she plotted her husband's decline? Or was it possible that she was no more than a vulnerable fool whose actions were misunderstood? She spoke falteringly in what was later described as a musical southern drawl. And she tried to convince the court of her innocence, of the truth behind much of the evidence heard over the previous several days. She was rather tearful, and she didn't try to justify her actions. Indeed, she, by, by mentioning James's infidelity, in fact, she admitted what everyone already knew, that she was guilty of immorality. But it did not follow, she proclaimed, that she was therefore equally guilty of the charge of murder. And actually, confusingly, by speaking out, she seemed to the Victorian public to be both brave and vulgar. But by appearing to lack those proper female virtues of docility, that decision to speak turned out to be fate a fatal misjudgment. She wanted to protect her children from scandal. She'd insisted that James's faithlessness was downplayed, but there was nothing she could do to escape her own. And in a society that was riven by hypocritical attitudes to sex, it was inevitable, really, that she'd be found guilty and sentenced to hang. And that verdict polarised the country between those who believed in her that she'd been guilty of murder and those who argued that she'd been tried for adultery. So over many tense weeks, the arguments raged backwards and forwards. And without ruining, you know she's reprieved, but without ruining things, for those of you who don't know what the answer was or what, that actually, what ultimately turned out at the end of the story, suffice it to say that it was immediately denounced as a judicial travesty on a par, although it's been forgotten, with the Dreyfus case in France, which was contemporaneous. And anyway, despite the title of my book, Florence's guilt or innocence, as I hope I've begun to show, is not the most important aspect of resurrecting the case and by rifling through the documents here in the National Archives. As I hope I've begun to show, like all of the best history, the resonance of this story lies in the light it shines on the hypocrisies that seethed at the heart of the society in general. And if I've done my job properly, I hope that the retelling also prompts us to wonder how far we've really come and to look a little harder at how relevant so many of those issues that this case raised still remain today. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 12th of June 2014 at the National Archives, Q. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.